0: Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight, I want to speak to you of peace in Vietnam and Southeast Asia.
1: On March 31, 1968, Lyndon Johnson threw in the towel.
0: During the past uh, four and a half years, I have lived daily and nightly with the cost of this war. I know the pain. That it is inflicting.
1: Almost from the beginning, LBJ had tried to keep the unpleasant truth about Vietnam from the American people.
0: I can't get out. I just can't be the architect of uh, surrender.
1: By early '68, with the death toll mounting, that strategy wasn't working anymore. Embattled, isolated, and demoralized, the president came finally to believe that the only way to end the war was to take himself out of it.
0: Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president.
2: It's a sad moment in history. I think it was not a war that he sought that once impaled, he was not going to turn from it.
1: David Halberstam covered Vietnam for the New York Times.
2: So in a sense, it seemed to me that this was a welcome moment because it meant we were being, as a nation, released from Lyndon Johnson's ego. It was the greatest single political tragedy of my lifetime.
1: This is South Dakota Senator George McGovern in an interview recorded only months after LBJ left office.
2: No president in American history ever worked at the job any harder than he did. I don't think any president ever wanted to go down in history as a great president any more than Johnson did. What happened to him in Vietnam threw a cloud over everything he did.
1: 50 years later, that cloud still casts a long shadow over the Johnson presidency. But here's the thing. Before he lost his way in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson altered the American political landscape more profoundly and with more enduring consequence than any president since Franklin Roosevelt. The Johnson
3: administration's domestic policy legacy is one of the most underappreciated stories in modern American history.
1: This is historian Josh Seitz. Close your
3: eyes for a moment and imagine a world without Medicaid, without Medicare, without a Voting Rights Act, without a Civil Rights Act. Imagine a world without Head Start, without public radio or public television, without federal aid to primary and secondary education. Lyndon Johnson fundamentally transformed the social contract between ordinary Americans and their government.
1: Now, just to be clear, LBJ's Great Society had and still has its detractors, people who think his big government programs did more harm than good.
3: Liberalism doesn't work. The war on poverty didn't work. The Great Society didn't
1: work. We'll deal with that legacy question later in the series. But on the question of sheer impact on American life, Well, here's what one of Johnson's successors and my former boss had to say.
4: Half a century later, the laws LBJ passed are now as fundamental to our conception of ourselves and our democracy as the Constitution and the Bill of Rights.
1: Working for Barack Obama in the White House, I saw just how difficult it is, with all the powers of the presidency, to move the needle on anything of real importance. And yet, Lyndon Johnson did move the needle over and over on a scale that today seems unimaginable. How he pulled that off, how he overcame the enormous forces of resistance and inertia that stand in the way of change is a story we'll be telling in this podcast.
5: One, two, testing, testing, one, two, three.
2: For the
1: most part, you'll hear it straight from the horse's mouth.
2: Identify the tape. Oh yes, I do remember a great story.
1: Through the recorded recollections of people who were there, in the room, when this history was being made, and who had a hand in its making. This
5: is an interview with Mr. Herbert J. And Marshall, Mr. Jewel M. Is May 14th, 1969.
1: I'm Melody Barnes, and from PRX, this is LBJ and the Great Society.
0: See if you can get the son of a bitch on the phone. Johnson got votes by pulling lapels. God damn it, you'd need to vote with me once in a while, just one time. And nose to nose. They beat our mass transit by 30 votes, and we came back and passed that.
5: I don't think Dendon, in any sense the word, was a radical. Civil rights, we passed that. He knew more about what made Washington work than anybody.
0: Now poverty was where they're really going to make their record. We passed that.
2: Just remember, you can tell a man to go to hell, but you
1: can't make him go.
0: We must, and we will, go forward.
1: Episode 1, The Great Unveiling.
2: Hello, I've got some dictation for you on the uh, Kennedy story. Yeah, where are you, Tom? I'm in Dallas. Yeah, okay, boy. Now take it easy. On November 22, 1963,
1: a reeling nation found itself with a new commander-in-chief.
0: President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed here today, period. The president suffered a massive gunshot wound in the brain and was pronounced dead at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, period, paragraph.
1: It was one of the darkest days in American history. JFK had been the most famous and admired figure in the world. His shocking murder at age 43 shattered the sense of optimism that the urbane young president had kindled in the country.
0: My fellow Americans, an assassin's bullet has thrust upon me the awesome burden of the presidency.
1: Now it fell to a dour, little known Texan to try and pick up the pieces.
0: I'm here today to say I need your help. I cannot bear this burden alone. The greatest leader of our time has been struck down by the foulest deed of our time.
1: In fact, from his earliest days in public life, Lyndon Johnson had himself aspired to be the greatest leader of his time. As head of the Senate, he'd amassed unprecedented power and had his sight set on the presidency until Jack Kennedy, a junior colleague, beat him to the nomination in 1960. As JFK's reluctant VP, Johnson had fallen into the same obscurity as nearly all before him. In his case, though, it was an especially humbling fall.
2: He would disappear out of his offices, you knew where he was gone. most likely was over to the White House, wandering around. Your obedient servant, just waiting for somebody to say, Lyndon, would you go down and get the president an apple or something?
1: Horace Busby was a longtime Johnson staffer and speechwriter from the Senate days.
2: The Kennedy guys mostly came from the Hill, and they'd known him as the awesome majority leader. And they were deferential to him. And yet, at the same time, they didn't want him to mess up anything of theirs. And he was he was over there, just kind of, you need somebody to go to Greenland, I'm
5: here. I was out at his house swimming one afternoon with him, and he looked absolutely gross.
1: This is Harry McPherson, another longtime Johnson aide.
5: His belly was enormous. He looked like a man who you know, was not trimmed down for anything. And it must have been a tremendous frustration in it.
1: Charles Bartlett, a journalist and JFK crony, recalled a painful conversation he'd had with LBJ's press secretary, Liz Carpenter, around this same time.
0: And I can remember one time Liz called me up and said, I wish you'd ask the president to call Lyndon once in a while because he's awfully lonely up here. He's, uh, he needs something to stimulate him. And maybe the president would call once in a while and ask his advice on some of these problems. He really isn't doing Charlie." So I mentioned this to uh, the president and... Uh, and he said, gosh, Charlie, he said, I, I really mean to do that. He said, I feel so sorry for Lyndon up there. He said, that's a terrible job for anybody.
1: By the fall of 1963, Lyndon Johnson was gone from public view, stripped of power and purpose and largely forgotten by the same press corps that had found him such good copy in his Senate days. When the murder in Dallas put him suddenly in the Oval Office, there was reason to wonder if he'd be up to the task. As it turned out, he was.
0: After the tragic murder of President Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson showed his mettle.
1: Helen Gahagan Douglas was a former Broadway star turned activist who had served with LBJ in the House.
0: In those first hours, he was fully in control. He restored confidence, and he helped ease the national pain.
5: You know, it was a spectacular performance the country in November 1963 was shocked and busted up. And a guy gets up and says, I'll go up and run the damn train. I know how to fix these things. And he gets his wrench and he marches up by the the side of the cars and gets into the train and fixes it. And pretty soon the train starts to roll. This is our challenge,
0: not to hesitate, not to pause, not to turn about and linger over this evil moment but to continue on our course so that we may fulfill the destiny that history has set for us
1: the message was clear in jfk's tragic death lyndon johnson saw an opportunity to mobilize the nation and from day one he had a plan for how to do it the night
3: after this horrible thing happens, Johnson doesn't miss a beat.
1: This is Princeton historian Julian Zelizer.
3: While he and his wife are in bed, he calls a meeting of various advisors, including Jack Valenti, and he basically gathers them around his bed. I sat
4: in a little chair next to the phone to the left of his bed.
1: This is Jack Valenti.
4: We had the television set on And the president propped himself up into bed and we watched the news reports. And we stayed with him till about 4 o'clock in the morning.
3: And it's an incredible meeting in that uh, Johnson explains just what he wants to do and how big his ambitions are. He talks about the Medicare bill that Kennedy had been unable to get through Congress. He talks about the civil rights bill, which is also stuck in Congress. And instantly, he's thinking about how to make a lot of these ideas into legislative reality.
4: That night, he sketched out for us what was to be an undeviating priority for his administration. To shake America by the throat and revamp the social priorities in this country.
1: And so, just hours into his accidental presidency, Lyndon Johnson, in his pajamas, begins laying the groundwork for the programs that will ultimately be bundled together under the banner of the Great Society. What remained was to find a way to package this hugely ambitious agenda and sell it to the Congress and the country.
5: The
4: thing that really set it off was the speech at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor.
1: In the spring of 64, Jack Valenti was looking for a new White House speechwriter, when another aide, Bill Moyers, dropped by with the candidate.
4: Bill Moyers said, here's a fellow I think you ought to talk to, and he might get introduced to do some writing for the president.
1: The fellow was Richard Goodwin, a former JFK speechwriter, then in exile from the White House. Valenti liked him and signed him up.
2: One day I was summoned to the presidential bedroom, and I heard a voice saying, Dick, come here. I looked around. The voice was undoubtedly coming from the bathroom.
1: Goodwin's recollection here is from a lecture he gave 30 years later, but the memory evidently hadn't faded.
2: I walked into the bathroom, and there, seated on the toilet, was the President of the United States. It was I to learn one of Johnson's favorite ways of holding consultation. In fact, one time uh, he had McGeorge Bundy in there.
1: Mac Bundy was a straight-laced Boston Brahmin and national security advisor to both Kennedy and Johnson.
2: Bundy stood with his back to the president and walked out of the room afterwards. Johnson later remarked, he said, "You wonder how a man like that ever got so far in the world?" <laughs> well, talking to me uh, at that conference of ours, the President said, uh, says, "Well, I'm getting all the Kennedy bills through." He says, "Now I have to go out on my own." He says, "I want to go." much further. And so, given that rather general mandate, I began to sit down to try to compose the speech which would be the framework for his administration, known as the Great Society.
1: Finally, the huge agenda that Lyndon Johnson had mapped out on his first night in office had a name a name that Johnson's team thought worthy of the project's giant ambitions.
4: It was evident that uh, there was meaning in this phrase. I thought it had uh, durability. I thought it was uh, commodious. I thought you could fit a lot of what we were trying to do within the the curve of this phrase. And uh, the president agreed.
3: Johnson had been aware in 64 before this speech that he needed some kind of a term. Roosevelt had the New Deal. Truman had the Fair Deal. Kennedy had the New Frontier. And he wanted his own catchphrase. And he understood this wasn't going to be easy. And part of how he was going to get his legislation was on selling a broader concept to the public on explaining how the different pieces of his agenda, how all the legislation fit together. So what's his version of the New Deal going to be?
0: Well, Johnson, you have to keep in mind, uh, in order to understand him, was a protege of Franklin Roosevelt.
1: Hubert Humphrey, LBJ's vice president, had earlier served with Johnson in the Senate.
0: That was his greatest joy, to remind people that Roosevelt looked upon him as his protege. A hundred times I heard him mention that. He always considered himself a New Dealer in the real sense of the Roosevelt tradition. Social security, yes. Minimum wage, yes. Uh, the kind of economic legislation for depressed areas,
4: yes. Uh, education, yes. He was a Rooseveltian Democrat.
3: Lyndon Johnson saw himself very much as a product of Uh, that era in American politics, the 1930s and 40s. He saw Franklin Roosevelt as the embodiment of this idea that the government could do good things for the country and had an important role in trying to provide security for all Americans. He wanted to take the federal government into areas of American life
1: that FDR had not been able to reach. But Johnson's grand ambition faced a major speed bump. The road to the Great Society ran through Congress, and their support for this enterprise was far from assured. Liberalism had really
3: hit a a bit of a roadblock by the late 1930s and early 1940s. In Congress, this coalition of conservative Southern Democrats and Republicans, mostly from the Midwest, form after the 1938 midterm elections. And this coalition in Congress had been pretty successful at stopping any further expansion of government.
1: So this was the political reality LBJ had to face. The only way to move Congress was to go around them and make the case directly to the country. The Michigan speech would be the great unveiling.
4: We knew before the speech was ever written that there was a the possibility that this could be a very important document. We were pointing toward this Ann Arbor commencement as being a time and a place to launch not just the great society phrase, but the embrace of the president's program, where he thought this country ought to go and how it ought to get there and, in truth, to display the conscience of the Johnson administration.
1: In May 1964, LBJ was at the height of his popularity. But even then, the Great Society would not be an easy sell. At the White House, all eyes were on Ann Arbor. More after this quick break. Hi, I'm David Brown, host of the Texas
0: Standard on Public Radio. If you're enjoying this series, let me tell you about another big piece of the LBJ story which I had a hand in and one you'll almost certainly find fascinating. It's LBJ's War, a sister series to the one you're listening to right now. It's the story of a president bound for greatness and the ruinous war where he lost his way. Check out LBJ's War right where you found this podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. That's LBJ's War. Now, back to LBJ and the Great Society. Members of the graduating class, my fellow Americans, I have come today to speak about the future of your country.
1: On May 22, 1964, President Lyndon Johnson, in black cap and gown, stepped to the podium in the biggest stadium in the country, the University of Michigan's Big House.
0: It is a great pleasure to be here today.
5: That bowl was damn near full, 80,000 people. Dick Goodwin had written him a hell of a speech.
1: Charles Roberts covered the White House for Newsweek.
5: This was the unveiling of the Great Society. It wasn't absolutely the first time he'd used the term, but this was the big unveiling of the Great Society with a capital T.
0: The Great Society is a place where every child can find knowledge to enrich his mind and to enlarge his talents. It is a place where leisure is a welcome chance to build and reflect. Not a feared cause of boredom and restlessness.
5: He delivered it well. The crowd seemed to get the idea that he was laying out a new program, that this was the Johnson program now coming on.
1: It was the Johnson program. But on that day, LBJ was reaching for something even bigger. Before this enormous, friendly college crowd, he laid out an almost utopian vision of what the richest nation on earth might aspire to beyond purely material wealth.
0: The challenge of the next half century is whether we have the wisdom to use that wealth to enrich and elevate our national life and to advance the quality of our American civilization. For in your time, we have the opportunity to move not only toward the rich society and the powerful society, but upward to the great society. The great society society
3: that he talks about in Ann Arbor is this idea that in an age when the economy was good, when when the middle class was growing and and when there was abundance in the United States, there was no reason anyone should be left out anymore. The country could afford to provide a great society, to, to make the United States greater than it already was.
0: So I want to talk to you today about three places where we began to build the great society.
2: I chose three areas to start with, partly because they were very important, and partly because Johnson loved alliteration, and I knew he'd really go for three things that began with C. In our cities,
0: in our countryside, and in our classrooms, far better. Are far worse. Your generation has been appointed by history to deal with those problems and to lead America toward a new age. So will you join in the battle to build the great society to prove that our material progress is only the foundation on which we will build a richer life of mind and spirit?
5: I rode back from Ann Arbor to Washington on his plane. He was absolutely euphoric. When he got back on that plane, it was a hot day, and he was just absolutely soaked, his shirt was soaked. He got aboard the plane and he violated his old rule and had himself a drink, a Scotch highball, and uh, came back to me and uh, said, well, what did you think of it? I said, well, it, he got a hell of a reception. I said there were uh, 27 interruptions for applause. Well, he said, no, well, wait a minute, there were 29. Mm-hmm. Jack, and he called Valetti and uh, we got squared away on how many times he'd been interrupted for applause. And then he took the script from Jack Valetti and read with emphasis uh, portions of the speech to us. Wanted to make sure, you know, mm-hmm. now did you get this?
2: The speech was a
5: smashing success. Afterwards, uh,
2: there was Johnson uh, reading the reviews of his speech. He called me in. He always loved to read the reviews of his speech. I don't think he ever was quite clear that he'd given a great speech until the reviews came in. He says, here's the U.S. news, he said. He reading it, he says, in barely six months, Lyndon Johnson has stamped the LBJ brand all over American affairs. You see, Johnson explained, I always said that charisma stuff was a bunch of bullshit.
4: Phrase was mantled now with uh, with some real substance. Uh, that's how phrases uh, take on some import. If they stand there alone on stilts, just naked syllables, that's one thing. But when they are now are codified and buttressed with real substance programming, then it takes on a meaning. And that's why I think the Great Society uh, caught fire at that time.
0: My fellow Americans. I'm about to sign into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964.
1: Two months after Ann Arbor, LBJ would score the first big victory of his presidency, passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was an extraordinary accomplishment, but for Johnson, no more than a first step, and the path forward was straight uphill.
3: In the summer of 64, even with the excitement of Ann Arbor, he had a lot of political anxiety that was weighing him down. And people today forget how risky a lot of the initiatives were. And he really didn't know if he was going to be in the White House come January. And he really didn't know what the prospects for the rest of his agenda were. Even though we remember Lyndon Johnson as a person who could do whatever he wanted, who could twist arms and make things happen, the reality was he always talked about the limits of his power. So he had big ambitions and he had a lot of confidence, but he really didn't know how this was all going to
1: unfold. In our next episode, LBJ goes looking for a general to run his war on poverty and instead finds a sergeant.
0: Sergeant. Good morning, Mr. President. How are you? I'm going to announce your appointment at press conference. What press
1: conference? I'm Melody Barnes. This episode was written by Steve Atlas, the executive producer. Senior producer Derek John did the sound design. Caitlin Rathy is our producer and researcher. Additional research from Julia Chen. Creative consultant Paul Taylor. Special thanks to the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin, Texas, to Rotunda, the digital imprint of the University of Virginia Press, for use of the presidential recordings, and to the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. For more in the series, visit lbjsgreatsociety.org. That's lbjsgreatsociety.org. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the series. Major funding for this project has been provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities, Exploring the Human Endeavor.